Hello and welcome. This podcast is a conversation about a wide range of topics and issues concerning the Indian cultural renaissance that took place at the Sri Aurobindo Foundation for Indian Culture Puducherry with Srimati Bilu Mehra. We are deeply grateful to them for the kind courtesies extended. The opening question which was not recorded due to a technical issue is now being appended here. Question One of your key strengths is your ability to create a link between the deep-rooted cultural ethos of Indian civilizational temperament with the contemporary socio-cultural concerns. Can you speak a little about your thought process as to how you do this so effectively? This could be informative for others who are also interested in pursuing this kind of an Indian way of seeking where we see a continuity or rather a harmony between an intellectual and a more inner quest. How can they go about this first for their own understanding and then perhaps for communicating to others? End question. Yeah, actually it's not, a, uh, <clears throat> it's not as difficult as it sounds. Uh, the first thing is to equip oneself solidly in the like any any discipline could be science could be medicine whatever in the fundamentals unless your fundamentals are not strong you you kind of intuitively know that there's some link but you don't know what it is so to get there you have to master your fundamentals it kind of reveals itself so that unless you invest you need to take out that time and effort to master these basics and read what I call other masters. Masters could be anything ranging from Vedanta, Bhagavad Gita, Ramayana, some of our Puranas and some really good classic writers of literature. It could be Kalidasa, it could be Shakespeare, it could be anybody. What are universally regarded as masters? So once you have a solid grasp on that, that is one. Number two is you have to be alert and aware and be a good observer of social and cultural trends that is going on around you and then you need to review your own life and the way you were uh, brought up the society around you keeps changing continuously but you won't know Uh, the best example i can give you say you're basically from delhi and uh, you fly out of delhi and settle down in bangalore or australia or us or somewhere and you stay there for 20 years you might come, you know, uh, once every year or once or twice in two years or three years. So that distance might mask a lot of things. But all of a sudden, you come back to your native Delhi after 20 years. You will see that you've come to a totally new world. This is verifiable by individual experience. So why does this happen? On the other hand, if you've stayed in the same locality, for these 20 years, instead of migrating to some other place or country, the changes are happening all around you. But although you notice it, it is part of your everyday life. So you don't, you don't really notice it, which means you don't observe it. So when you observe, the next step is to study them. And with that, this kind of solid grounding I just spoke about, the links will automatically begin to unravel themselves. So that's pretty much how I think I can explain how I write. So, you know, going through some of the essays and also like the very eclectic table of contents from your book, 
70 years of secularism. Um, I think there are lots of themes that have you pulled out um, in various essays. But if I, I've been a researcher, and uh, so one of the things I do is kind of really see what are the commonalities or the common themes. So a few themes that I could pull out, mm -hmm. and a few things, places you also mentioned them, um, but that sort of tie those essays together. One is this theme of cultural amnesia mm -hmm. and uh, states apathy. The disease, we can call it a disease from political correctness. It is a disease. <laughs> yeah. And this hyper-politicization of literary and scholarly pursuit. I mean, these are sort of the broad four things mm -hmm. that I thought you were touching upon in most of your essays. I might mm -hmm. have missed a few things there. But uh, so I'm curious if you could uh, break down some of these, either each one of these or at least a few of these, um, and explain to us and to our audience, to our readers, why, how come we landed in this mess, which you yourself described somewhere in one of the essays, um, maybe either in this book or on your website, this intellectual renaissance, this Indian renaissance that we had, and from there to this phenomenon called Kanhiya Kumar, you know. Yeah, that's on my, that's on Dharma Dispatch. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, how from there we ended up with this? And can you kind of break down these two? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you're specifically referring to my 70 years of secularism yeah. book, uh, there are two ways to look at it, primarily. One is the comprehensive view, which takes secularism as the basis, uh, or as a theme, main theme or motif of the book. And I have divided the book into two separate sections. One is an India before the word secularism was introduced. How was that India? That is one part. And then what became of that India after secularism was adopted as the political religion? The title of my subtext of my book is that only. Subtitle is it is. The, it was for the longest time the unofficial political religion. So what happened to India after that was introduced? So this is at the very broad level. So every single essay uh, have been categorized in these two in these two sections. So for example, why did we build such extraordinary temples? And why, for example, and what happened to the same temples? after we adopted secularism or whatever it's called. So these are some of the broad themes and everything that falls in the latter category. That is, the moment we adopted, ironically, we adopted something called secularism not by popular will. When you say democracy is popular will, it was not. Majority of Indians didn't even know what was democracy when, you know, they got voting rights just like that. So it was thrust on us. The India of 1947 or 1950, 51 was a very innocent India. That, So, fine, you might look at these things as superstition. But it was these superstitions which held the Hindu society together for more than thousand years of oppression. So you call them super, you call, you call all these notions a superstition and threw them in the dustbin. But what did you replace it with? Did you replace it with something better? History of the last 70 years tells us that the answer to that question is no. You replaced it with something worse. So which is why temples are neglected or monuments are neglected and you know society is divided all because of the so-called secularism. 
I hope that answers your question. Bibi Gundapa. Yeah, this him or Pilikani, one of the those stalwarts about that secular state cannot be a godless state. Yeah, both so both of them say the same thing. Yeah. All people in those days, yeah. actually, let me interrupt you here. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, before I forget, yeah. so all these stalwarts that you mentioned could be Pilikani, Jadna, all these Jadna Sarkar, all these people, they looked upon. Nehru as a joker, as a clown. Nobody took him seriously. You get that point. There's this guy in the class. He is not particularly, you know, uh, particularly bright or intelligent. And he is a class joker. And the rest of the bright boys in the class, they treat him as the clown. And that ha, thik hai, bolega ha. Isko koi seriously nahi leta. So unfortunately, that clown became the prime minister. Ah, go on. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> what a tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. So that, you know, this, this idea that a state, the Indian state became a godless state mm. when it became the unofficial religion, when secularism was brought into the constitution, right. it became a religion mm. of the state. Um, what, I mean, what, in your historical studies, what kind of um, opposition this act might, or this action by Indira Gandhi, what, did it, what kind of opposition did What is profane? Yeah. It's mm. not there in the yeah. Indian process. Yes. So, was there any opposition? Oh, there was tons of opposition, both to Nehru. See, as far as Indira Gandhi was concerned, uh, the question doesn't even arise. Because she didn't believe in any ideology except her personal power. That I have to rule India forever. So, there was no question of secular, whatever, nothing. I have to be in power. So, you tell me, Biloji, how will you help me remain in power? In return, what do you want? Take it. So this whole secular debate, constituent assembly debates, uh, devote a, a considerable uh, portion of the constituent assembly debates. There's some lot of discussions about uh, you know whether India should be a secular state or what is secularism and all this. These debates are there in the constituent assembly debates. So, but that word was not introduced in the the very first time the constitution came into force, word secular was not there. It was the word secular and socialist, they were introduced during emergency. And that, that everybody knows that part of uh, uh, history. So yeah, there were debates and there were deliberations, but again, uh, I will have to go back to P.V. Kane. His analysis of the Indian constitution is pure gold and it's very original. He mentions very clearly that this constitution makes a clean break with everything, every ideal and political idea, uh, political ideals that were held as sacred for ever since 
Indian civilization came into existence. It makes a clean break with that past. So how do governments run? I mean, you have to refer, how do courts function? They have to refer to the constitution, various laws, because your constitution is a touchstone and the reference point, although it is not sacrosanct. And then Kane also mentions that, uh, you know, uh, what kind of a constitution is this? If it took two and a half years of intense deliberation and discussion and then it was changed within one year. Amendment, constitutional amendment came about less than a year or slightly after that, after the constitution came into force. So, Kane asks, what kind of constitution is this? The phenomenon of the contemporary Indian hmm. mind, do you think is it just like a one year happening because of the media push, the media creation or hmm. is that the pretty much the average Okay, there are a couple of threads in this. 2014, Kanai Kumar cannot be viewed without the context of 2014 elections. Nobody, even BJP didn't uh, dream that it would get 282 seats. So that kind, and forget BJP getting so many seats. The biggest shock was Congress getting reduced to 44 seats. That is one-fifth of its uh, number of seats in 2009. 2009, Congress had 206 seats. And plus it had ruled continuously for 10 years. That's one decade. And this party dropping down to just 44 seats. You know, the second highest uh, uh, you know seats from the bottom was got by AIA-DMK, 37. Congress is 44. So this is supposed to be a national party. So they were unable to get out of that shot. So that is one. Okay. What is related to that is this incestuous relationship that the Congress and communists have had since mostly since uh, yeah since Nehru's time only, but that intensified during Indira Gandhi's and Rajiv Gandhi's time. So each time the Congress is in power, these guys and it has a very beautifully well-oiled ecosystem. They all stand by each other. Each time the Congress is in in trouble, it will either prop up this Congress ecosystem, communist ecosystem, it will prop up some or the other troublemaker. So this is what explains Kanaya in one from one perspective, from one perspective, a very important perspective, it props up people like Kanaya Kumar and they call him, you know, social activist, student activist. What kind of a student activist? Seriously. So he's not even a student. They do this because of their decibel levels. Now. He also stood for elections, right? What happened? Point is, one thing that uh, uh, the communist ecosystem did well was to capture in, uh, all avenues of in disseminating information. Could be the media, could be academia, newspapers, you know, journals. They call themselves opinion makers. Biloji and Sandeep are friends. I scratch your back, you scratch my back. You will call me great uh, scholar. I will call you great thinker, respected intellectual. So, we will have another editor friend who is sitting there somewhere in Delhi. So, I will call you, you know, one of the greatest intellectuals of contemporary India. You will say I am one of the greatest scholars. That fellow will amplify our voice. And some other TV channel will call both of us for an interview. So, this is how they are good at creating visibility for their own people. For Kanaya Kumar. Otherwise, how many votes can he get beyond JNU, beyond his own communist leftist circles? How many votes can he get? How many popular votes can he get? What is his record of public service? On what issues of national importance has he spoken or 
even given a coherent idea what is his record so th these people are good at creating and propping up such people it is bullying tactics intellectual bullying tactics of a different kind which they uh, this is something they have perfected and it used to work earlier because what all you had was a bunch of national newspapers few magazines like india today and week and whatever and doordarshan was there and then some ztv something that's all so they could get away with all this now there are no barriers to information either acquiring information or spreading it mm. or cross verifying it and they have they are they are stuck to the same formula because they have not moved with the times so this is uh, these are some of the things that kanaya kumar is not a phenomenon yeah. uh, he's an uh, he's a blot on the society yeah. as simple yeah but, yeah. but uh, it's not just the name i mean mm. it's something that yeah all these alpesh yeah, guy yeah, and the other fellow yeah, it, No, no. It has always been there. Okay. It has always been there. Kanaya Kumar is the uh, later avatar of uh, a lot of other uh, scoundrels like that Ashok Mitra. All these guys. Is yeah. Okay. So, so there are two things. One is that the fact that someone like him would lose hmm. in an election, so would suggest that people on the ground uh, they have a certain kind of earthy, maybe. Uh, kind some kind of a rooted wisdom that they will see that this is not the kind of person you want as our no you don't even need no let me cut you short here you don't even need any wisdom you just need common sense ki ye gali ka gunda hai hum isko vote nahi denge yeah so that that common sense simple is, it's not something that is reflected yeah. by the so called intellectual class so who who who's yeah, so who's all inviting yeah. kanaya kumar now ramchandra guha who are all giving him platforms ramchandra guha is giving him platforms shekhar gupta is projecting him you are living in a bizarre world but it's not bizarre because this is what they've been doing for last 60 odd years and and that is a bigger concern i guess you know this this very deliberate attempt to dumb down the indian mind hmm. by propping up people like absolutely yeah that for an educationist or people who are concerned about hmm. education and what the future generations of india will be like how how should we address this you know how can we be a force or be an instrument whether through our own individual work on upon ourselves and as part of organizations like safek or any other organizations what should be done in your view to maybe put some kind of a speed breaker on this excessive dumbing down of indian mind yeah i mean uh, uh, given the extent to which we have been dumbed down I don't even know where to begin. Why this dumbing down has also happened is because our education has broken down completely to the point that I don't think it can be fixed in its present form. It can't be repaired. It's I think it's beyond repair. That is one, and two is also the breakdown of the Hindu family system. Earlier, these Kanaya Kumars, a lot of Kanaya Kumars could not be created at any at any rate at the rate at which they are being produced. all these arundhati roy kanaya kumar alpesh all these jokers they have been bred at a very fast pace in the universities ironically and the indoctrination is done by teachers who should be instead teaching them the good things in life not to say tell lies not to cheat not to betray your country but the opposite is happening so we are living in such a world so this also is because partly of the breakdown of the family system earlier the father or mother used to ek danda leke theek kar dete the 
सो बाई द टाइम देवर सिक्सटीन और सेवनटीन दे वुड बी सेट दे वुड नो कि ओके मम्मी डांटेगी और इमीडिएटली दे वुड नो दैट दिस इज नॉट द राइट वे टू गो दैट इज नो लॉन्गर देर सो या फिक्स द फैमिली सिस्टम फिक्स एजुकेशन सिस्टम इट हैज टू ऑल दीज चेंजेस फंडामेंटली हैज टू अकर एट द लेवल ऑफ फैमिली ए एंड बी द इमीडिएट कम्युनिटी Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite. It is, yeah. It's it's, it's a very legendary quote. Very legendary. Yeah, quote. yeah. All my classes of integral education, I kind you of keep quoting that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A single education Something generation. Yeah. And the strange thing is that he had that Yeah, it is. Uh, well, it's not uh, easy to answer this question. It requires actually a cultural and uh, uh, cultural history of post-independence India. One thing is that we fail to create a cohesive national education or a cultural education that binds India together. So, one big thing, one major failure was not making Sanskrit the national language, or at least making Sanskrit compulsory. so that's a big failure like colossal failure and two is this mental slavery out of which we are unable to come out take this interview we are speaking in english right so this that is a big 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 uh, education policy failure is what i'll say so yeah instead of decolonizing we became more and more colonized in a very fundamental way in the at the level of language now you don't have a, uh, at least this generation or at any rate from the 1960s onwards those who were born in that uh, uh, decade they barely know their own mother tongue they can't speak any language fluently including english they can't write i mean i was in the it industry for a long time and i would look at all these email exchanges official email exchanges relating to something and the english was appalling and ha ha it's appalling so i would tell some people that look you speak in your mother tongue whatever you want to say in the mail you speak in your mother tongue that mother tongue is neither english nor tamil nor kannada nor hindi so you you are rootless completely so a big part of this has to do uh, with education uh, with the failure of building up proper education policy and a proper cultural policy and one of your essays you say something very i mean it's it's simple but it's profound in its it's profound in its simplicity Like how would somebody understand nationalism? It's the love for the country. Yeah, it's as simple as yeah. So, and our education system also failed hmm. to inculcate that love for the hmm. nation. Hmm. So it's sort of like you know we've come to this point where the idea of nation itself is. You know, it's dangerous. Yeah. It's Nazism. Yeah. Divisive. No, because yeah. See, after the uh, Marxist took over the education. they deliberately did this they deliberately said india is not one nation of course you can't say that so openly to your kids so there are other ways to do this <clears throat> you look at the uh, do the review of uh, textbooks from 1970 onwards till uh, maybe last year or whenever the new batch of textbooks came from class 3 to class 12 <clears throat> you will be shocked do it you are an educationist do a review of this the change the history of this kind of anti india anti 
uh, Indian culture, Hindu culture, indoctrination, you know, it descends progressively to saying that, okay, the result is Bharat Tere Tukde Tukde, Inshallah, whatever. This is the result. This is what you've been learning yeah. since childhood. What else will be the outcome other than Kanaya Kumar? Okay, if you are talking purely in terms of art, even okay, okay. So we will narrow it down to this itself. So, if you briefly trace the history of cinema, especially uh, Hindi cinema, it reached a certain inflection point. After which it no longer began to be called Hindi cinema. Suddenly, without a knowledge, transformed into Bollywood. Mm-hmm. What does that even mean? Yeah. 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 Exactly. That. Dekho, we are your imitators, Hollywood. <laughs> we used to be called Hindi cinema. We want to be wood. Wanna be wood. It's wanna being from then on. So that marked a clean break. Until then, most of the filmmakers, okay, you forget the ideological part, but for the most part, and just to give a balanced perspective, for most part, some writers, filmmakers, directors, they all were culturally rooted in the sense that they had a gown to go back to. They had come from some kind of village or had a rustic kind of a background and they had largely studied. They were more comfortable speaking in Hindi, Bhojpuri, Marathi, whatever, and not in English. English was unheard of. Writing scripts in English in Hindi cinema was unheard of. Which is the trend now. Yeah. Everything is written in English. So, so that that was the inflection point, becoming Hindi cinema, becoming Bollywood. And two, uh, for example, you take uh, Manoj Kumar. Okay, he would sing this whole patriotic song using what? What was the backdrop? He would have a plow yes. in an agricultural field, Mere Desh Ki Dharti and all that. So that was a different kind of patriotism. You can laugh at it or whatever. The point it is, it was ingrained in them. Even without that song, the movie would have run. This was their way of filmmaking or their cinematic vision. Whether it is artistic is not doesn't concern us. But this breed vanished when it was replaced by a trio of Javier Dakhtar, Amitabh Bachchan, and the rest of these directors. It could be Prakash Mehra, Manmohan Desai, all these guys. They completely. I'm not saying that you know. They did this um, deliberately. No, except for some movies by Javed Akhtar, they began to toe the communist line, and they did it beautifully. That you will understand only in retrospect. You won't understand it when you were growing up watching those movies. Even me, mm-hmm. I was a big fan of those movies. You see, this 
takes me back to answering the first question when we started this interview that how do you make these links so in retrospect you look at this and you have a base of some kind of learning so these things become clear 70s movies especially they show me one movie which criticized indira gandhi or, or the government just one movie and then we know what happened with that andi kisa kursi ka that yeah. that's fine yeah. but yeah those were very brave people but otherwise the general uh, but the general trend was like this okay it was indira gandhi who pushed these extreme socialist policies and you had lot of shortages black marketing all that right she pushed that as a result of that society became progressively poorer 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 with lot of shortages which breeds crime which breeds social instability which is what communists want unless the social instability economic instability they won't have a revolution she is the one who pushed those policies as a result of these black marketeers you know hoarders of anaj and you know kala sona and all that yeah those th- yeah all these things right so they become villains but what made them villains because of your policies but you don't criticize the government that made these policies which gave birth to these villains so um, my last couple of questions uh, and it's actually quite a switch from films to something that i have been to ask you what kind of uh, i mean i think if we have to get back on track hmm. we have to really figure out deeper way from where we are coming who we are as a society as a nation and what is the role india as a nation is supposed to play in the world what do you think what kind of individual and national tapasya it's 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 really going to require that very severe sincere tapasya what is required just listening to your talk yesterday you know you were listing out all these books going for anybody in the audience to go through that work again requires a very sincere purpose to know where we are coming from so in addition to making ourselves a little intellectual what kind of inner work in your view is required both individually and as a society as a nation for us to rise up to that vision that our rishis have given us you know for india to be a jagat guru yeah th- those are big words the one one reason why uh, india was what it was as the we want to call it jagat guru vishwa guru light of the world whatever all good things all true yeah. why it was so is because of a strong social backbone hinduism is made of communities which are integrated in f- in very subtle threads which are not visible but they're there our festivals our attitude towards nature our attitude towards all creation these things were lived hinduism is a lived religion you cannot learn it by books sorry even your vedas won't help because at most what you will do you just chant them use them for puja but beyond that what up jeevan mein daily life mein whether at your family level at your individual level or at the community level or at the national level so there is a gradual gradation right so unless they are implemented unless they are it lives in blood and flesh in other words it lives through hindus unless you live that hindu life this cannot be achieved so when mahabharata whatever it says that you know for the sake of one village one family should go should be sacrificed and for the sake of nation yes right, right. so that 
why where does this come from so we were following these ideals subconsciously like like we breathe that's why we, we could withstand so much of all religions i don't call islam and christianity religions but there's a the resilience of sanatan dharma is because it has the self correction mechanism no other religion has when things you know go so bad no external force came and corrected it they came and invaded us that's different that's brute force when it went so bad sanatan dharma has an automatic inbuilt correction mechanism some chaitanya mahaprabhu would come some basavanna would come some vidyaranya would come how would they come why would they be born because of this mechanism and how was this sustained by people by hindus by communities so there was a time why people are finding it difficult ki how can we rejuvenate this how can we do that when can we bring back one more jadunath sarkar or when will pv kanad next be born why they ask these questions that there was a time when you step out of the house you would breathe hinduism would be in the air i'll give you an example even today if go to some temple uh, uh, village how is your typical lifestyle there you wake up go to your lake i don't know how it is now but that's how in my childhood i've experienced it you go to the nearest lake in a village or whatever all along the way you will some sound of some temple bell you will there you know instinctively you will do this namaste i'll come back wait this you live through your entire life and a mass of people will live this and masses in thousands lakhs of villages will live this for hundreds and thousands of years tab jaake banta that backbone of this sanatana society has been broken so i guess uh, this maybe you can call it my being my being devil's advocate or whatever or just for the sake of further clarity in this we can't go back to No, you can't turn the clock back. No, you can't. By uh, strengthening the family system, this cannot look. Spiritual practices, Vedic practices, going to temples, reading Bhagavad Gita, will only bring you so much. But there's something called practical life. Correct, your daily life. Now, the biggest hurdle for Hindus in the last fifty, um, sixty years is that they are spending a majority. of their day in earning livelihood earning your livelihood was not difficult in those days relatively speaking because it was a society based on commodity on the surplus uh, surplus of material food grain you know vegetables whatever so you really didn't need to you know earn money earn as in as in the sense that we understand today make a living and all that so when you spend say 10 12 hours in office husband comes home and both husband and wife do the same thing what about the kids so this this has to be undertaken at the level of family to reduce your wants reduce your needs that's what i was going to reduce say reduce your needs your kids are, your kids are more important if you want your sanatana thing to survive just another generation so i mean frugal living frugal I, when i say frugal living it doesn't mean you live in poverty so reduce your needs and you know get back uh, it has to happen at the level of family a and community b सोसाइटी How do you assume that if you replicate it in India, the results will be different? Sir, so one last 
I think yeah. you've kind of alluded to it in a few other responses. As a writer, as an intellectual, as a thinker, um, as someone who has this you know, very keen, sharp understanding of the contemporary India, what would be your few words of guidance or advice for Indian youth, say, who are studying in college or who are just entering college or entering the workforce? How would you guide them so that they can be a positive force for India's cultural renewal? Okay. I have a cynical answer and a non-cynical answer. The, cyn <laughs> the, the cynical answer is that nobody can guide, let alone teach the contemporary youth. I've seen them in various places, in various forms. You cannot guide them or teach them without suffering maybe physical injury. <laughs> okay, that is a cynical answer. The non-cynical answer is that read good literature, number one. literature good classical music, whatever, any good music, okay, uh, not the kind that inflames you, not the kind that is meaningless noise, basically arranged in some random order. Read good literature, read our epics first and foremost, read good literature from any part of the world, could be Shakespeare, could be Tolstoy, it could be Dostoevsky, anybody, that is one. Uh, then the other thing is that just don't go beyond, behind the latest what you call fads. The most alarming trend I've seen in recent uh, years is this explosion of the culture of putting on tattoos. I'll suggest a very informed, very scholarly essay by uh, Theodore Dalrymple on this uh, phenomenon. You must read it somewhere. Yeah, yeah. So he gives a beautiful analysis. And he did, he, uh, did this article is more than 15 years old. Yeah. So that uh, don't go behind these uh, fights and read or get exposed yourself since internet is free you all have data connections on your phone nothing is you know you don't have to search for anything with any effort it's all on the on your palm so read what i call the masters could be in any field could be literature uh, slow down the pace of your life slow down the pace of your life it is difficult because the amount of distractions that you step out of the house and by the time you get back are enormous. They are meant to be, all these distractions are there for a purpose. They are there deliberately to distract you from focusing on the deeper uh, aspects of life. Given that these, our youth are actually swimming against the tide. These will be, you know, uh, unpopular or old-fashioned opinions, but try and be old-fashioned even for a day. I suggest a thought experiment. Anybody who wants to follow this path for at least two days a week, walk out of your house after your breakfast, maybe with a parcel of food or something. Don't carry any money throughout the day and then you come back. So yeah, and uh, memorize a few classic poems. Perhaps that will show you, you know, a better path in, for your future. Yeah. I think that thought experiment sounds very good. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I'm not just talking about like the young at heart also. YouTube, it's just yeah. it's just a visual medium, yeah. nothing to feed your mind. Right, right. The whole point of expanding your imagination. What happens when you expand your imagination is that you create 
willingly you create space to fill in more stuff good quality good quality stuff okay. well thank you so much my pleasure it was wonderful uh, i i thoroughly enjoyed this uh, session yeah thank you